The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine. Um, as we start a new year, and this is the first podcast of 2024, uh, the um, conflict in the Middle East uh, continues to uh, be a dominant concern. Um, and it's not just a concern for what's happening in Gaza and the West Bank, al- although that remains, you know, like a horrifying situation with one of, one of the great slaughters of the 21st century going on. But cl- um, the uh, Israel-Palestine situation, as so often in the past, is sending shockwaves throughout the region. And we're seeing sort of escalating conflicts that amount to a pro- series of proxy wars between the United States and Iran, with the U.S. and Israel on one side, and Iran and various allies and militia groups on the other. And uh, this uh, conflict, one can see it extending, you know, from the Red Sea and Yemen, with the the Houthis now in uh, open conflict with the United States, into Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria, among other places. So to talk about all this, I'm very happy to have on Trita Parsi, who is a long-time very astute commentator on foreign policy. He's uh, the vice president and co-founder of the Quincy Institute, uh, which has been a most welcome voice of dissent within the Washington consensus, you know, offering a perspective that values uh, diplomacy and engagement with the world rather than a reliance on militarism first. So I gave a survey of all this, but I'm wondering, Trita, do you you have like, what's your sense of where things are going? Like, because from where I'm sitting, it really feels like, you know, we're already like well on the path to a, a larger regional war. Well, we are. I mean, just take a look at where we are today compared to where we were on October 6th. We just had the U.S. striking the Houthis for the third time in about four days. The Houthis have now started to attack American ships. They didn't prior to the U.S. taking that action. The U.S. has also struck Iraqi militias in Iraq. Prior to that, they were only doing so in Syria. And that's obviously a dangerous escalation because of the tension that creates with the Iraqi government. We're seeing far greater tension between Israel and Lebanon, in which both sides are striking each other at a deeper depth than they were before. And on top of that, we are having the Iranians striking northern Iraq with missile strikes very close to the U.S. consulate, um, as well as striking two other countries just in the course of a week in retaliation for the terrorists attacking Kerman and other things. I mean, we're in a much, much worse situation. And I think the most important aspect of this is that the administration says that it wants de-escalation. And I genuinely believe they do, but they're not acting accordingly because the actions they're taking are actually escalating the situation further. I mean, just take a look at the attacks against the Houthis, setting aside their inefficiency. In fact, what the U.S. did with that attack is that it made the Houthis' effort to blockade the Red Sea more effective. Because now you have a shooting war in the Red Sea, and more ships are going to avoid the Red Sea than they were doing before. And the Houthis actually don't have to continue to hit ships. They just need to continue shooting. They can miss. All they're doing is they're adding risk, and that risk causes ships to avoid the Red Sea. So setting aside that, we nevertheless have a situation in which By the U.S. taking that action, we may very well see Houthi attacks against American military ships as well. I mean, so the escalation opportunities are tremendous. 
And the de-escalatory steps that are necessary, the most obvious, the most effective, that would pacify the Israeli-Lebanese border, that would stop the attacks of the Iraqi militias against the U.S., most likely reduce, if not stop, the attacks by the Houthis, as well as the tensions between the U.S. and Iraq, because we have a nuclear angle there as well, is actually a ceasefire in Gaza. And that's on top of, you know, releasing the Israeli hostages and ending the slaughter. But if you just look at it from the escalation standpoint, that's the obvious step to take. So when the administration says that it wants the escalation, I'm just sitting here waiting for them to actually do something about it. Yeah, no, no, you make an excellent point. And I, I think it's worth maybe underscoring that there's a lot of denial about this in the United States and I, I think in the larger West. I b- believe the British Prime Minister basically said that uh, what's happening in the Red Sea has nothing to do with Gaza, which is an amazing statement. <laughs> the And if you look at like some media representation, I mean, it is basically, well, the Houthis are pirates, right? Like this is like Long John Silver trying to take over ships and uh, gain loot. Like, But that, I mean, like, you know, that's clearly not what's going on the the the, the cause of, of the conflict in the red sea is very clearly like you know like the houthis taking stands on, on uh, what's happening part in Gaza. Of the reason i think the the british prime minister i mean, I mean obviously it, it's such a blatant <laughs> lie but part of the reason i think he may think that he can get away with it is at least on the american side i can't make a judgment for the british press but in the american press for weeks and weeks there was no mention that the Houthi demand was a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. It kept on saying that the Houthis are attacking, but with no explanation as to why. There was a correction in the New York Times, actually, after it was pointed out that it doesn't even explain, okay, why are they doing this? Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that the media should endorse it or not mm-hmm. to scrutinize it. Yeah, the Houthis may be lying. Fine, scrutinize it. But not to mention, to avoid mentioning it means that you're depriving the public of the awareness that there may be an option to de-escalate the situations through a ceasefire. There is potentially an option to stop these attacks by doing a ceasefire. And incidentally, during the six days there was a ceasefire, November 24th to 26th, all of the attacks on U.S. troops by Iraqi militias went down to zero. And there's only one attack by the Houthis in the Red Sea that can credibly be ascribed to them. So there's actual evidence as well that a ceasefire would uh, de-escalate the situation, yet that is the one obvious step that the administration is least inclined to pursue. Yeah, no, I I mean, there's almost a bizarre, like, kind of double think going on here, because on the one hand, yeah, there's this uh, unwillingness to acknowledge that the conflict between Israel and Palestine is is a motivating force. And then on the other hand, an ascription to Iran as being a kind of mastermind that's behind all this and also behind the October 7th attack, which if you believe that, then then these things are all connected in any case. And and you often see the same people making both arguments, uh, which is like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, but, but I mean, leaving aside that double thing, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it does seem like obvious and compelling that the, the continued uh, slaughter in Gaza is a motivating factor. But all, I, I mean, there's some complexity to that because there's a way in which particularly Hezbollah, and possibly Iran initially, like, there's a lot of evidence that they were, like, taken by surprise or taken aback 
by what Hamas did, and we're like kind of reluctant to get involved. And I, I think that should also be wor- that's also maybe worth unpacking a little bit, like the way in which you know um, this decision to like escalate and expand, you know, like it almost, it's, it's a deliberate choice. It is not like an inevitable cause of uh, what's happening. Do you want to yeah. talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to the involvement of the Iranians, which was an accusation that was thrown out early on, uh, even U.S. intelligence show that the Iranians actually were taken by surprise mm-hmm. uh, by the attack. I don't think there's any doubt that the Iranians are supporting Hamas, arming, mm-hmm. training them. I mean, the reason why Hamas has become a much more efficient fighting force as well as the Houthis is because of Iran. I mean, the Houthis have ballistic missiles. Clearly, mm-hmm. this is technology that they got from the Iranians. That, however, doesn't mean that there was any Iranian operational involvement in, in that attack on October 7th. And incidentally, if if just training and arming is sufficient to to convict them, which is actually, an, you know, that would be an interesting world to live in. But the biggest loser of that world would be the United States, mindful of everyone that we're arming and training mm-hmm. uh, and all of the coups that are taking place in Africa right now by special forces that the U.S. train. But also, I think it's important to then recognize the dynamics within the so-called axis of resistance. They're brought together by certain common objectives. In the case of Iran and Hezbollah, they also have very strong ideological coherence, religious coherence. That does not exist between Iran and Hamas. Mm -hmm. The relationship between Iran and Hamas from the origins of Hamas was very negative. Back in the 1980s when Hamas was founded, it was actually siding with Saddam Hussein in his invasion against Iraq, Iran. Later on, and incidentally, the, the founder of Hamas, Sheikh Yassin, was very anti-Shia. As you know, the Hamas mm-hmm. comes from the Egyptian Muslim yeah. Brotherhood. It's actually thanks to the Israelis assassinating Yassin in 2004 that a thaw took place between Iran and Hamas, because with him out of the picture, others within Hamas who were more open to the idea of collaboration with Iran got more leeway to pursue that. But, but it's, you know, they do have a common objective, which is a larger geopolitical struggle in which they're resisting what they say is the domination of Israel and the United States of the Middle East. But beyond that, the, the, you know, the, what is binding them together is not necessarily that strong. And that was very clear during the uh, Syrian civil war, in which, again, Hamas and Iran were on two completely different sides. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there's like a real complexity in, in these relationships on, on that end. And to some degree, I mean, I think some of the, the folly of American foreign policy is that it's polarizing the region in a way that is like, you know, making these forces that might not naturally be aligned to become aligned. And that, that I mean, that's almost a classic foreign policy mistake, right? That yeah. uh, you, you want to try to divide your, your foes rather than unite them. And uh, towards that end, I mean, one of the larger geopolitical things that we're seeing now is that the, uh, the Biden administration is really doubling down on its policies that were already in place uh, prior to October 7th. That is to say, the, the goal of creating the strong diplomatic relationship and normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel with the United States as the broker and that uh, cementing this relationship based on a common enemy of Iran and in the process, basically sidelining the Palestinians or like, creating a situation where the Palestinians would have to, you know, ex- accept um, defeat 
and accept uh, terms, whatever terms Israel gives them. I mean, that was kind of the policy in place before. And one would think that October 7 would have upset this. And uh, there are many ways in which like it makes it much more difficult. But far from like rethinking things, the United States, like there's every evidence from uh, reporting about the plans for post-war Gaza to uh, other statements that they want to redouble this. And especially they see Saudi Arabia and not just Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia under the crown prince as the cornerstone of their policy. So I say this, I, I want to tie that all in with what we were talking about earlier, because I, I feel like this is the, the strategic logic of escalation, that if you want to create a polarized Middle East of the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel on one side against Iran, then the sort of you know proxy wars that we're seeing are what you're going to get. Uh, but but let, let's, uh, I want to hear what you have to think about all this. So I think you're quite right that the administration is doubling down on the Abrams Accord and are, I mean, I find it very problematic. Let's take a couple of steps back. You're absolutely right. The, the Abrams Accord was essentially the manifestation of the belief, the conclusion that the Palestinians no longer matter. Mm-hmm. This is a conclusion that came out of the fact that after the uh, Arab Spring, the Palestinian cause was no longer moving the Arab publics in the way that it used to. Mm-hmm. And then presuming then that that was a permanent reality, that this is a new normal. And it never was. It was a temporary normal because of the Arab Spring itself, which meant that this Arab, uh, the Syrian civil war and other crises in the region took up a lot of the energy of the region. And as a result, yes, the Palestinian issue was deprioritized. But it's come back, clearly. Yeah. And the, in some way, there was a degree of honesty in what the Trump administration was doing because they described the, the, Arab, the Abram Accord as moving beyond the Palestinian issue, mm-hmm. meaning there's no need to resolve that issue in order to have direct flights between Ben Gurion Airport and Dubai, which for whatever reason, apparently is some sort of a prize. And, and so that belief was then readopted by the Biden administration. At first, they didn't want to use the term Abrams Accord. And I think in general, they're not crazy about the idea because it means that they're just continuing Trump's policy. Mm-hmm. But that's really become what is the top priority of this administration. This is part of the reason why the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was not a priority. This is part of the reason why they pushed Biden so hard to negate on his campaign promises and actually go to Saudi Arabia and fist bump MBS without anything coming from MBS in return. All of these things because of this belief that the grand prize is to have normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And another cornerstone of that, of course, as you mentioned, was to have a joint coalition, Arabs and Israelis against Iran, which then makes this profoundly unoriginal. Because the U.S.'s foreign policy in the Middle East for the last 40 years has been organized around the principle of isolating Iran and creating coalitions against Iran. It used to be called dual containment and, you know, then was a regime change policy that was even harsher. And now back to let's create uh, an alliance between Israelis and, and Arabs against Iran. The administration now, instead of recognizing that that actually increased the likelihood of violence in the region. Because once it was clear to the Palestinians, there is no path diplomatically to a state. Because now, when the Israelis are so powerful that they don't have to give you a state, not only 
do the Israelis uh, completely lose any interest, not that they had much to begin with for the last 20 years, of any compromise, but the rest of the world and the United States and the Europeans are all lining up to endorse the Abram Accords as some sort of a peace deal, even though it's coming at your expense and you're just being shoved under the rug. So at some point, that was clearly going to create such a bad situation that there would be a return to violence. When it would happen, how it would happen, no one knew. Now it has happened. And instead of recognizing what a profound mistake that was, Biden himself goes out and says, part of the reason why Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th was because I was so close of creating peace in the region, which means that he still has not come to understand that him continuing Trump's policy of ignoring the Palestinians does not create peace. It creates the circumstances for more violence. And this is, of course, simultaneously as he claims that the U.S. is pushing for a two-state solution, which it is not. So I, I think it really has put the contradictions and the massive flaws of American foreign policy in the region in a very, very neat box where we all can see it quite transparently. And this is part of the reason, in my view, the United States simply doesn't have the credibility, the capacity to play that type of a leadership role in the region. And so once this horrible war is over, I personally am hoping that there's not going to be a major push for the U.S. to push for some sort of a peace process, because anything that is led by the United States, frankly, is, a, uh, is dead on arrival. I think the U.S. should support a regional effort for peace. But putting itself in the lead, I think, really kills any such effort. Yeah, no, we can. I want to return to that point like in a second, because I think there are other alternative models for achieving peace without American leadership that I think, you know, um, have to be pursued. I, but I want to just like underscore, like, as you mentioned, the, the love of delusion to think that, you know, like if it, it wasn't for Hamas and the October 7th, the U.S. was on the verge of creating uh, peace in the re- region. I don't know if there's any basis of that, but also this de- delusion that like the Arab world doesn't care about the Palestinian issue, which is like just based on the fact that the only people the American elite deals with are like Arab elites. So yes, I, I will grant you that like, you know, the crown prince uh, of Saudi Arabia and the other royal houses uh, of the region don't really care about the Palestinians. They don't care about their own people. So why should they care about the Palestinians? But whether the general population of the Middle East or, you know, like the uh, general population of people, nations all over the world, whether they're they're indifferent to the Palestinians. Uh, That's another question altogether. And I have to say, like, you know, like all the sort of violence that we're coming, seeing out of uh, Gaza, which like, you know, in the Middle East, they're seeing much more of because they have a much less censored media on that issue with you like Al Jazeera and other networks showing very graphic images of sort of not just the violence, but also the humiliation and degradation of people. What that's going to do to the, the ability of, you know, Israel to make peace with these other countries, like like a genuine peace, not a peace of like, you know, state by state of like, you know, uh, we get the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to sign something, but like how the people in that region feel about Israel and how they feel about the United States. Like, I, I, I just think that there's like, just such a willful denial of the fact that like this is like so harmful to the the cause and i can't really think of any other place in the, in the world this is really a middle eastern exceptionalism the united states in its foreign policy has always cared about public opinion and like when dealing with like eastern europe or asia or even in latin america there's some concern about like how certain things stand with public opinion the indifferent the 
the indifference of public opinion is like almost predicated on the idea that there will be you know permanent autocracy in these countries that public opinion will never speak and mm, i mm. just don't think that that's a very realistic view of the world um, no I, i think that's i think that's a great point and and you know the polls that just came out incidentally by winnet which i think has been a big champion of the abram accords show that I, if i'm remembering correctly about 96% of the saudi public opposes mm. normalization yeah. and I think those numbers are even so stark that even MBS may actually have second thoughts about yeah. it because as much as he has popularity in Saudi Arabia because some of his reforms, uh, it doesn't mean that he is completely insulated from public opinion, particularly when passions are going so high. But I think there's also another element here, which I think, again, the Biden administration has shown a reckless disregard for opinion in the region which is that, you know, people in the region do not see this as Israel's war against Gaza. They see this as Israel and America's war against Gaza. And it's not taken out of nowhere. It's because of the fact that Biden bear-hugged Netanyahu and attended the war cabinet when the war plan was hashed out. So in the view of people, they see this as evidence that Biden didn't just support the war. He supported how the war was conducted because he was there. He was in the room. He approved the plan. That's the perception. And that's created a situation in which people, including Western journalists in the region, tell me that they see this as a situation in which the anger in the Arab street against the United States is worse than it was during the Iraq war. Yeah, and, no, and that's I, that's yeah. quite a bar. I mean, that's quite a record to break, right? Yeah, that that shouldn't be easy, but Biden managed to do that very quickly. And I think there's another dimension to it that I think is making it worse because of a broader uh, stability dimension, which is that the Iraq War was vehemently opposed by the Germans and the French. I mean, Villepin's speech in the Security Council is historic. I mean, it's the only time there was a standing ovation and applause. It's actually not allowed in the Security Council. This time around, the Germans are beyond uh, yes. uh, Biden's position. Uh, most Europeans are just lining up to express support for it, which means that it has taken on a civilizational Huntingtonian dimension that the Iraq war actually didn't, it couldn't, because there was such clear opposition from the Europeans to it. This is very bad news. No, absolutely, absolutely. I yeah, know it's, it's a very uh, dangerous situation. I mean, I, I'll note maybe on the other side, we are maybe starting to see some dissents um, among the Europeans, uh, you know, led by Ireland, but, but possibly extending to other countries. But no, you're right that the level of support that Israel has gotten here from the West is basically creating, you know, like a huge divide. I think it extends, you know, beyond the Middle East. It is basically, you know, the West versus the global South in very stark terms. And we see that also with the sort of South African case that's being brought against Israel. Yeah, no, no. And I mean, you're like much closer to like sort of the foreign policy world than I am. And the question I keep asking myself is like, 
are there not people, you know, in the Biden administration that are aware of this? Are they not uh, like aware of like the the damage that this is doing to the United States, like like around the world, like like you know, like America's position as a kind of a, you know, like I mean, America both styles itself as the leader of the free world, as the you know the hegemon that secures the liberal international order, but there is actually like you know a fair degree of popular acceptance of this. Like in in many countries, there are many people in the world who do see America as an important ally and upholder of values, and this is destroying all that. And I just like, like, is there like any sense at all in Washington that this is happening? Like, are they aware? There there is, and there's an understanding of that in in big parts of the Biden administration itself. I've spoken to folks inside the government who say that the cables are coming in from all over the world. Mm-hmm. extremely alarming. People are reporting what is happening, how this is damaging the U.S.'s standing. And by the way, that was all pre-South Africa taking Israel mm-hmm. to the International Court of Justice. There is a likelihood that they will get an injunction, that the court will decide that there is enough plaus- evidence that makes it plausible for there to be have been uh, genocide in Gaza. And as a result, uh, issue some form of injunction, probably less than what the South Africans are asking for. That essentially gives a preliminary judgment that Israel is guilty of genocide. And all of the weapons Israel has been using in that genocide are American weapons. A big portion of the ammunition was shipped to Israel after October 7th. So you can just imagine what that does to public opinion, particularly in the global south and in the Arab world. Again, because this is not seen as Israel's war, it's seen as Israel and America's war. And it actually will have an additional problem for the Europeans. Because in the global south, I think already judgments have started to be cemented. Their view of what Israel is doing is not going to profoundly change because of the court justice. It's going to validate it, vindicate it, but it's not going to change it. In Europe, it's going to be a bigger challenge. Because for the Europeans, international law and international institutions are a bit of religion. They don't dismiss those things as easily as we do in Washington. Here, we frankly don't care that much, right? Europeans do care. So this is really going to put some tension between their dedication uh, and commitment to these principles and international law, these institutions, and their support for Israel in a way that we have not seen ever before. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, uh, as you say, the contradictions are being laid bare. The, the final point, I want to circle back to something you said earlier, which I think is very interesting, which is, you know, like the possibility of America, you know, with, withdrawing or, you know, taking a lesser role in any sort of post-war uh, situation. And I think that there are models for like, you know, like other countries uh, coming in and maybe taking more of a leadership role. Uh, I'm thinking, I mean, particularly since you you write so much about Iran, like, you know, uh, wasn't there like uh, China uh, played some sort of role, at least in hosting negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Um, and I'm wondering if the, the, you know, something like that, like, you know, like it doesn't have to be like China, but it could be, you know, like India or Brazil or, or you know, bringing in these other global uh, powers, like to act more as an honest broker and yeah. like have more buy-in from uh, the people in the region in, in terms of negotiations. So, so I wrote a brief about this, I think it must be now two or so years ago, it was before the uh, Iran-Saudi normalization through the help of the Chinese. Uh, and I made the argument that the U.S. should still be involved, but there should be 
it should be led by regional players themselves. It's their security, first mm-hmm. and foremost. They have to shoulder it. But there should be involvement by the Chinese, perhaps the Indians and others, who also have a key stake in this, and not make this any longer the sole domain of the United States. We have mishandled it. Uh, we're not better off because of our own mishandling. The region is worse off because of our mishandling. Uh, and it's not that important of a region at the end of the day for us to continue to guard it in the manner that we have. Uh, and I think today there's more evidence that that path is not only plausible but also desirable. Plausible because we've seen now that the Chinese have stepped up and have started to take in these roles. When I wrote that, one of the key criticisms was that, well, look, the Chinese are never going to want to play a, a political role in the region. I agree. At the time, it was a prediction for the future. It wasn't a reality. It became reality much sooner than many expected, including myself. Desirable because... It's either that, frankly, or there's going to be a lot of instability that will spill over throughout the rest of the world. But one alternative that I just simply don't see is that the United States, once again, is going to try to claim that leadership. Again, I'm not saying the U.S. shouldn't be involved. I think the U.S. must be involved in some ways. But that insistence on leading things and pushing American solutions down the throats of regional players, that era is over. Yeah, no, that's that's a great note to end on. I, I, I think that you're basically right. It's a, a controversial point, but I think maybe one that will become increasingly accepted. Non-controversial points in Washington right now are quite useless. <laughs> that's right. So again, I want to thank you for being on the, the podcast. This is, I, I think, a really illuminating discussion. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.